Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, good evening to those in the room. It's so good to see you. Good morning uh, to those tuning in on Sunday online. Um, I'm sure you guys have already had this realization, but uh, today marks the one-year anniversary uh, that uh, everything shut down. So a year ago, this Sunday, we had canceled in-person services. We, we actually had that one-week filler where we went into the house churches because we just didn't know what we didn't know about the pandemic. Um, and, and actually, uh, today is, is um, I think, called by uh, Mayor de Blasio is a uh, day of remembrance for the city of New York and a day of remembrance for the country for the 500,000 plus that we've lost in this country due to COVID um, and for the thousands more that we've lost across the world. Um, and so I'd like to, as a community, for what we've just lived through, honor that and joining with our city. So if you wouldn't mind, we're just gonna take 20, 30 seconds of just silence and remembrance and prayer, I would ask you to intercede for those families whose entire lives have been turned upside down by this last year, and then, and then I'll pray and, and close our time, and then we'll enter into um, our message today. So join me for 20, 30 seconds of, of prayer. God, the hope of your good news is that you came to earth in our form. You took on flesh. You died just like all of us will. And the promise, the good news, is that you died undeservedly. You died unjustly. You shouldn't have died. You did nothing to deserve death, and yet you tasted it. And because you are stronger than death, because you didn't deserve it, God raised you up, Jesus, after three days, victorious over death, as we just sang. And so the promise, the hope of our good news is not that we won't suffer. We're going to suffer. We've suffered a lot this last year. The promise is that suffering doesn't get the last word in our lives. The promise and the hope is that death does not get the final say in our stories, in our loved ones' stories, that there is something after death. It's called resurrection because you are a God of life and creativity. And even though that's the promise, Lord, we, we recognize that often for, for many of us when we're in the midst of suffering, we hold on to that hope, but we don't flaunt it. Instead, we just suffer. We mourn with those who mourn. And so right now, God, we, we ask for the families of those who have lost loved ones, who've had their lives turned upside down. We ask that right now they would sense comfort and a peace that surpasses their circumstances. 
that they would be comforted in their suffering, that they would know that their lives are not in vain, that you are present, that you love them. You love them enough to join them and their loved ones in death and to defeat it. Would you make that message true through your church? Would that be what fills us and shines out? Would that be the light that shines out into the city and this world? So we thank you, God, that you've carried us through this year. And we just, we just praise you. We ask that you speak to us today in this message. And we ask that we hear your voice and your heart so clearly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for that. Um, we have been in this series, Detox. Detox. And the idea behind it is, is simple. This year has been long and hard, and we've been in survival mode in a lot of ways. And so we've picked up certain habits, we've picked up certain behaviors um, just to survive, just to make it through. And so we're asking now as we're, we're coming through 2020, as the end seems to be in sight, as we're moving in the right direction, what are those things that we need to detox from our systems? What are those things that we need to name and let go of so that we can step into the next chapter of what God wants to do in this church, Hope Brooklyn, in our individual lives and, and relationships with God, but also in the Big C Church? And um, before I go further, next week I have a friend who's going to be in town. Uh, he and his wife, his name is Fernando Castillo, and uh, he's going to be speaking um, so if you want to join on Thursday night, sign up in our church center app uh, and tune in next Sunday morning. He'll be continuing our detox series. It should be a good time. So um, I hope you join us. And, but, but also in that vein, and many of you guys know, I announced it two weeks ago, um, what God's been doing in, in my life and my wife Anna's life. Uh, I'm transitioning out as lead pastor of Hope Brooklyn. Um, God has made it abundantly clear that our chapter is done. We fulfilled our assignment and so what that means in the context of these last couple Sundays and these sermons is that you guys can't fire me anymore. So I'm gonna let it rip. Now, obviously, like, it's not like I held back before, but there is a certain freedom. It kind of tickles a little bit in your heart. Like, you do get a little bit of the tickles because it's a freedom that recognizes that time is short. Time is of the essence. I mean, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but kind of like what you hear from people when they get toward the end of their life. The trivial things don't matter. They don't matter. I only got a couple Sundays left. I want to tell you what matters. I want to get down to the fundamentals. I have an urgency in my heart. I have a burning in my heart. And so I pray and I pray for those tuning in um, that you would hear me. Because I don't think, hopefully, it doesn't come from me. That's something I'm passionate about, but hopefully it comes from my relationship with the Lord and from the way that I've been in his presence over the last year and few years. And so the thing I want to talk about today of what we need to detox from our systems, and this is a big C church one, is the pastoral pedestal. Putting pastors on a pedestal. What does that mean? What does that look like? And I, I dare say that within Hope Brooklyn, um, we've worked hard to fight that. Even me being called away is an example of that. 
where God is not allowing any pastor, any voice to be put on a pedestal in his church. But there is a lot of American Christianity that you can feel it. You just show up and you feel it. That the, the way the church functions is that it funnels, God's grace, God's word funnels through a singular individual. And that's not good. And I want to talk about that. And even though I feel like Hope Brooklyn, we've, we've worked hard to cultivate a community that doesn't put anyone on a pedestal, the seeds that would wish to do that are in all of us, every single one of us. And we need to address that today. The short of the matter, and we've seen this, I, I don't think this is a um, controversial statement, is that in many ways the church in America has looked a lot more like America than Jesus. The church in America has valued a lot more the values of America than the values of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, you'd be pleased to know you're in good company. We're in good company. This isn't new to Americans. This was happening in Paul's day. It's in the scriptures. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, look, here's the thing. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, Greeks, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying amongst the Corinthians in, in ancient Greece that Jewish Corinthians, they wanted a Jesus that performed miracles, right? That was their, their, their preference. And the Greeks, you know, in line with Aristotle and Plato and all those guys, they wanted a Jesus, a savior, who was esoteric and was, was wise and was a sage and a great teacher. And Paul says, that's all well and good, but that's not where we start. We preach Christ crucified. Now, maybe you notice, here's the thing. Jesus did perform miracles, didn't he? That wouldn't be a lie. Jesus was, inarguably, the greatest teacher, the wisest teacher that's ever lived. That wouldn't be a lie either. The point, says Paul, is that's not the foundation. Jesus is multifaceted, for sure. There's a lot of elements to the nature and the character of Jesus and the nature and character of God, for sure. But that's not the foundation. The foundation of our preaching, the foundation of our church is Jesus crucified. Jesus, the grotesque, humiliated one. Jesus, the, the public spectacle. Jesus, the weak. Why do we start there? Why is that the foundation of our faith? Quite simple. Because when that is who we worship, when that is who we direct our attention to, Jesus on a cross, we recognize that this world is broken. We recognize that I am broken. That I deserve to be on that cross. That's what the wages of my wayward life deserve. Death. And I will die, as I just prayed. We will. We will get what our lives deserve. And not even like our lives deserve, like it's all on us. It's deeper. We were raised, we were raised in a broken world. No one had a chance. 
And yet, because God entered into those places, God is saying the foundation of your community is from your weakness. Here's how this plays out, right? If we have a church that starts with Jesus the miracle worker, if that's what we value, then guess what's gonna be our highest value? Those who can perform miracles. So that's what the, the invisible structure of our community, we're gonna seek after performing miracles. If we have Jesus the teacher, then what's our highest value? Those who teach really well. The gifts, and guess what? Some people teach better than others. It's just a gifting. But if, and in both of those ways, ego and pride sneaks in, don't they? But if we start with Jesus the crucified, Jesus the weak, well, guess what our community is going to value? Weakness. But who wants to go first? <laughs> who wants to be, no, no, I'm going to be the weakest one in this church. No, you're not. I'm going to be the weakest one in this church, right? And yet that's what God's doing. Because if that's at the center of our church, our weakness, then there's no room for pride and hierarchy because it's absolutely level. Doesn't matter who you are outside these walls. Doesn't matter if you're valued or devalued by society. Here, the ground of our community, the foundation, is our shared sin, our weakness, our brokenness, and Jesus meeting us in those places. There's no room for pride. There's no room for hierarchy. But if we don't do that, and that was happening in Corinth, then we make Jesus in our own image. And what I've found is that it's so easy to preach a different Jesus. It's so easy to preach an American Jesus. We want those values to be true. And the issue is, as, you've, as I just said, it's not like some of those values are false, it's just they're not complete truth. They're not the appropriate starting place. And if you're just one degree off at the start, my mathematicians in the room know this, one degree off at the start, you end up at an infinite distance from where you want to be. You end up completely in the wrong place. And so I want to read actually a, um, there was an article that came out recently uh, about a church, a well-known church. You're probably going to know which church I'm talking about when I read this article. It came out in the New York Times. I'm not going to name the church. And I, I took out the names of people who were named in the article. Uh, not because I'm afraid or I think that's like, that we shouldn't name like where, where we've fallen. I think it's important to name mistakes. That's the only way you can fully restore and reconcile. But the reason I'm not gonna name it is because it's just, it's not important for our purposes. It could be any church because it's every church because it's all in, in us as well. We have these temptations, these seeds. But this is an example, I think, and, and granted, recognize that the author has an opinion, has an angle, but it's an example of a church that perhaps started well, but drifted away from Jesus the crucified. Drifted away from Jesus the weak one. And so the values of their community took on a different shape and form than Jesus who met them in their brokenness, in their weakness. And so this is how this article describes this church and the culture of this church. The, the writer says, a pastor who was so swept up in ministering to the famous that ordinary congregants felt neglected. A culture that worshiped wealth while making volunteers cater to leaders as royalty. 
and a sense that for all the celebrities surrounding the church, its soul was harder to find. On Sundays, a team of congregants working as volunteers prevented anyone without the right badge from wandering backstage, and only a few had clearance to enter the green room, stocked with a lavish catering spread and changes of clothes to fit the pastor's increasingly particular taste. The church seemed to go out of its way to cultivate a hierarchy of coolness. A reserved seating section for VIPs appeared at the front of the church and then expanded to take up multiple rows. A former volunteer said that when high-profile entertainers or sports stars would try to slip into the main seating area, content to worship with ordinary churchgoers, ushers were often instructed to guide them to the special section in front or to whisk them backstage to meet the pastor. The staff built this culture and made them a big deal. A lot of us felt torn because it doesn't feel like something Jesus would do. Congregants also described a distinct caste system at the church that corresponded to appearance, wealth, and fame. If you're a pastor, you're more important than everyone else, said person, who used to attend the church and sang with the local church's worship band. If you're a celebrity, you're more important. If you've done something to make you famous or if you're rich, you're more important. What we have in this is a definition of a culture, a culture in this church, and let's just name it. Like, what is the culture here? Well, it's hierarchical, right? Important people are on the top. Less important people are on the bottom. What does it value? It values wealth. It, it, it values coolness. It values human approval. It values fame. It values charismatic speaking, amazing performance, things that American society values, this church values. And like I said earlier, it's not unique to this church. It's not unique. I've seen churches with 50 people that, that value these same things. It's not unique to American culture either. I've been having conversations with my friends who, are, um, who, who um, are, grew up in first-generation immigrant churches. And it's not unique to American culture. We, we have this tendency within us to, to set up a human, right, on the pedestal, to set up a human and to deify them. We want to make Jesus in our own image. And the interesting thing is it's not unique to our modern context as well. Paul is talking about it in 1 Corinthians. And so I want to turn to a passage in Scripture where he describes why the Corinthians and how the Corinthians were, were putting a pastor on a pedestal. It's from 1 Corinthians 3, and we're going to go from verse 5 through verse 20. I pulled up my phone because I wasn't sure we had the screen working, so I wasn't sure if I needed to pull out the, the Bible. But we got it. We're good to go. Um, so we're going to go 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through verse 20. And this is how Paul is describing what's going on in the Corinthian church. He says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. 
The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you were wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. The values of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. What is going on in this passage? Well, a little context. Paul planted a church in Corinth. He planted a church, he served it, he tended it, he raised up some leaders, and then he left because Paul traveled across the Greco-Roman Empire uh, area planting churches. And as he's been gone, word has gotten to him that factions have developed in the Corinthian church. Different parts of the church are attaching themselves to different leaders. They're saying, I, I like Apollos. I, I think he knows what he's talking about more than Paul does. And, and others are like, no, no, I like Paul. Paul is, he has, he knows, he, he does miracles. Apollos is a great teacher. Not, and others are like, I like Cephas. That's Peter, the apostle Peter. Cephas, he was there with Jesus. So he has the history so the Corinthians are, are choosing their leader. They're, they're raising up their leader, and there's like division between them. They're putting certain leaders on pedestals. Pedestals. And Paul, in this passage, he's trying to pull back. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you guys doing? Like, let's remember the foundation here. He's trying to pull back and represent to them what's really important in order to realign them to the truth of God's reality. Right now, church in America, Hope Brooklyn, I want to pull back and represent what's really important so that we can realign ourselves in this next chapter to God's reality. Does that sound all right? And so what does he do first in the passage? He goes, what is Paul? And it's him writing it. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? And another part of Corinthians, he goes, was, was Paul crucified for you? Was Apollos crucified for you? Who are they? They're servants. They're servants given a task by God. One of them planted, another watered, but God has given the growth. And the one who plants and the one who waters, even though they have different tasks, even though they have different gifts, they are one and the same, he says. 
You are God's field. You are God's building. What's Paul doing? He's, he's pointing out this dynamic between pastor and congregation. And he likens it to a gardener and a garden. Now you think about that, right? Does the garden exist to serve the gardener? Does the, do you see roses, you know, pouring water on the gardener's head? Do you see tulips taking pruning hooks to the garden? I'm sure tulips wish they could take pruning hooks to the gardener every once in a while. Do you see that? No. The gardener serves the garden. The gardener exerts labor and energy using their skill to make the garden beautiful. And the only way the garden grows is not the gardener's skill, but is God who's present in the dynamic. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, look, pastors have a job. Paul, I, Paul, had a job. Apollos has a job. But pastors don't change your life. God changes your life. Pastors prune and tend and plant and water, but only as a servant, not the one responsible for any substantive change in your life. I'm not responsible for your life change. I have a job and I try to do my job, but I'm not responsible. God is. God is. I have a role, but the source of what you're looking for is not in me, it's in God. And he's available. And then Paul goes on in verse 10 through 15, he has this really stern warning mainly for pastors and leaders, but also for, for all of us because we all make choices that talk about what we value and form our lives in such a way. And he says, look, each will build on the foundation of Christ, but be careful how you build and what materials you use for it will be tested by fire. Meaning to say it will be tested by the light by crisis, when things don't go right, then the materials, the choices you've made day in and day out, the character, the habits you formed or haven't formed, that's when it will be tested. The values that a pastor has relied upon, the dynamic between pastor and congregation, that will be revealed in the fire. And the thing is, guys, church is a people. That's what we are. We're a people. We're a community. So what we're doing here is by building a church is creating certain values that are found in invisible spaces. Sometimes they're not named, but they're in the way we interact with each other. They're, they're in these really intangible places that's hard to see and name, but they're there. It's like the water that you swim in. And you know what a church values. You know what materials they're using to build with. So when a celebrity comes in and there's a VIP section in the front reserved just for a celebrity, which is to say someone who does something in society that is celebrated, that is valued. Valued to a greater degree than other things. And when the celebrity is brought to the front, that's a value of a church. That they value a certain skill, they value a certain human approval over other things. 
And James 2 says quite clearly, it speaks to that show no partiality to anyone. We're all equal. When an Instagram account that serves a multi-generational church only posts pictures of young people, that is a value that they are establishing. Not with words, but it's clear. When my friend, this actually happened, my friend showed up at a small group at a church and he was told by the leader, not there but later on, that he couldn't be a part because, quote, you're not our target demographic. That's a value. Both the, the fact of the target demographic but also to have the, the gall to say something like that. Hey, friends, I know I'm not the lead pastor of Hope Brooklyn very soon. People are our target demographic. Everyone's our target demographic. Please, I pray, don't let it ever happen here that someone shows up. I don't care if they're rich or poor. I don't care how they're perceived or judged out in society. If they show up, they are our target demographic. They are our target demographic. They are the beloved of God. And if we ever start picking and choosing the people that we want, woe to us. Your budget reveals your values. And I know that's, Ryan talked about that a little earlier, the budget for a church, but also your budget. Go check where your money goes. You'll see what you value, and you might be surprised. You're like, oh, wow. I value, you know, this popcorn from Whole Foods a lot more than I thought I did. I value good food. I don't know, right? But your budget reveals your values. When a church preaches sermons with its actions but not words, that's what our values. When a pastor gets a hall pass for, as a celebrity, when a theology is all about me but not we, we see our values. And then when crisis comes, when the fire comes, the materials that have been used to build the community is revealed. When a pandemic comes, the materials that are used is revealed. When a pastor leaves, we're going to see what materials were used to build this community. And you can use cheaper materials. They're a lot faster. You can use pesticides on your, on your crops. You can use hormones in your chicken, and you turn a great profit, don't you? It's faster. You have more quantity. It actually, it, it, like, you can turn a better profit, but in time, the results of what you valued will show. It's baked into the DNA of, of creation, guys, and it's the same with us. Will it all come crashing down? Will you show up to church but feel like you have to wear a mask? Or like you're never accepted? You know, in early Christianity, it's interesting. The early Christians, they were so surprising to their, their wider world, to society, because they did things that didn't make sense. They did things that, that showed their value. So when pandemic struck, it's reported many times Christians would not flee cities but they'd stay and they'd minister to the sick and often they would die. Which therefore that shows a value of care for the sick and it shows a value of self-sacrifice. They're not worried about what's gonna happen to them. The earliest Christians took in aborted infants 
And the way abortion worked in the ancient world was you actually had the child and then you left it on, on trash heaps. They took in those children and raised them. The early Christians empowered women. They obliterated social status. They were building their lives with different values. We take for granted in our day orphanages and hospitals and schools and homeless shelters. Those were all started by Christians who saw something bigger to this world, who saw value in every human. What are we building with? What do we value? What are you building with? What do you value? And then Paul turns his attention after he talks about like, who are these pastors? We're just servants. And then what are we building with? We need to be careful what we're building with. It will be revealed one day. It will be revealed how we're building our lives and our communities. And then he turns his attention to the Corinthian church, to you guys, not the leaders, but to the congregation. And he says, you are God's temple. You are God's building. God dwells in you. Therefore, don't trust the wisdom of the world because the thing the world values are not what God values. The wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. As Paul said, the cross is foolishness to those who don't see it. But for those of us who see it, it's the power of God. What Paul's trying to get at is that this dynamic of culture is not just a one-way street from pastor to congregation. It's also from congregation to pastor. You have a part in setting the culture just as much as any pastor does. There's a book that recently came out called A Church Called Tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good, goodness. Getting at the idea of how do we have church cultures that are good, that are not toxic and destructive, but are good. And he talks about, the, the authors talk in this one section that culture is relational, that it's a two-way street. And this is what they write. They say, pastors and other leaders exercise a preliminary voice in forming and telling the church's narrative, acting out the Christian life for others to see, teaching the Christian faith and how it is lived, and articulating policies. They exercise formal authority and power to create and maintain the church's culture. Makes sense. But this is what we forget. The congregation, both individually and collectively, embraces the culture but also begins to reshape the narrative. Act out the Christian life for others to see, reteach the Christian faith, and rearticulate the policies. Thus, the congregation exercises its own authority and power to, sh and shape, to shape and maintain the culture. Over time, it is the interaction of the leaders and congregation, the congregation and leaders, that forms the culture of a church which is to say the culture that Hope Brooklyn becomes moving forward, the culture that the church in America becomes moving forward is on us. We get to shape it. We get to determine the types of environments we want to be. And Paul is saying, it's not, pastors are just servants. It's on us. And so I want to put all this together. What am I saying? What am I really trying to get at? Some of this might have been abstract. What am I really trying to get at? Uh, we have a couple diagrams I'm going to put up. Very simple, uh, but we're going to put them up. So the first diagram details pastoral bloat. Pastoral bloat. There it is. And I, 
I would contend that this is how many of the churches in America function. This is the pastoral pedestal. God gives his revelation to Jesus, right? But then Jesus gives his revelation to the pastor, and the pastor gives his revelation, usually his, could be her, but usually his, to the church. That's how it works. And in that case, the pastor has an important role there on the pedestal, delivering God's vision and revelation exclusively to the church. But notice, we got a couple middlemen there, don't we? So what happens over time? Over time, we just cut Jesus out. We don't really need him that much. The pastor has absorbed everything he or she needs from Jesus, and they're going straight to God through Jesus. So we don't even need to worry about Jesus. So we cut out Jesus, and then the pastor, over time, becomes this salvific figure for the congregation. So there's this subconscious worship of the pastor, and if the pastor makes decisions that demonstrates he's human, a pastor falls morally, even if it's super grievous, but demonstrates that he is human, we condemn and crucify the pastor. Because they're not just human, they're supposed to be more of a savior figure, a salvific figure. So the pastor fails us and we all lose our faith. And I had this happen. I, I, I who preach on this, right? Like I who know this, it's in all of us. I had a, a, a hero of the faith that two years ago I talked about. His name is Jean Vanier. He started these communities called La Arche. And La Arche communities are where the able and disabled live in intentional community. I've read a lot of his books. It came out that he had sexually abused six women, at least, in his lifetime. It was really, really catastrophic for the victims, for, for so many people. I mean, this, this, is, this feel, feels like it's coming out all the time now, right? I was crushed. I was crushed, and it, it, the, I was crushed beyond the point of, this is my friend or human who I respect who made a mistake. It was crushed because there was something in my heart, subconsciously, unbeknownst to me, that had turned Vanier into a salvific figure. I had put some hope in him. And that's on me. My hope's not in him. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. I'm constantly reminded of G.K. Chesterton's famous quip. He goes, the church is proven true not when her children do not sin, but when they do. In fact, it is our sin that confirms the story itself, the good news that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we can't get it right. But unfortunately, in this paradigm, we elevate the pastor, and we want the pastor to get it right. Which means if the pastor gets it right, guess who doesn't have to get it right? You don't. You kind of get a hall pass. Because guess what's going to save you? Not Jesus and not your faith and your relationship with Jesus, but your pastor's faith is going to save you. As Peter Rollins puts it, you don't have to have faith. You have faith in your pastor's faith. And that's not at all what Paul's talking about. And the other thing this creates is consumer Christianity. Because we show up to consume the pastor. And not the pastor, but the pastor's gifts like any other marketplace option. And as soon as I'm no longer being fed by the pastor's gifts, what do we do? We go to find a different church, a different preference that suits my palate better. This is just valuing what society values. But there's another way in what Paul just described to us. 
And so I want to put up the second diagram. And the second diagram is the vision that Paul basically just led us into in Corinthians. God mediates. God comes in Jesus. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And then Jesus is made available to this dynamic between pastor and church. To both. Now there is a difference. There is a role that a pastor has that's super important. The gardener, to tend, to cultivate. Maybe one is a planter, the next is a waterer. It is important. But the pastor is not what is consumed. And, and this is like, you know, people get on um, consumer Christianity. But let's be real. We do show up to consume. But what do we show up to consume? Not the pastor. We show up to consume Jesus together. That's who we consume. And this reciprocity between the pastor and the congregation ensures that both are keeping in check, that both are grounded in Christ. And when that happens, we all take ownership of our faith, we all take ownership of our church, and we all take ownership of the culture here. I know many of you, I've heard one of the things about Hope Brooklyn I've heard time and again is that this has been a place where people have come with church hurt, they've been burnt by the church, and they found healing here. They found restoration here. Praise God. Their faith has been renewed. Well, guess what? God is calling me away, so now it's on you to make sure that continues. It's on you to embody that value. So when more people show up who have church hurt, you get to heal them. Be a part of their healing journey. You get to create that culture. You get to have those values. It's on you. It's on us. We take ownership together. And this is all summed up in Paul's line, how he ends chapter 3, the passage we just read. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. This is after he said, who are Apollos? Who Who is Paul? All of that. After he says, be careful what you build. Then he says to the Corinthians, so then no more boasting about human leaders. Because all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. The pastor has a role to teach and to shepherd and to tend. But all is already yours through Christ. Don't boast about another human being. Boast in Jesus. That is the one we show up to consume. That is the one who makes your faith real. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. I'm going to invite the band back up and close with this. How do we fight against the values of America that seek to infiltrate? And how do we remain rooted in Jesus? And I want to put up the third diagram. We have one more. The reason why we can have that second diagram where God comes to Jesus and then Jesus meets the pastor church dynamic, the community, The reason why we can have that is because first we had this, where God came to the world. But how did he come to the world? He came in Jesus, and the foundation was the cross. Jesus became the servant of the world on the cross. As Paul would say, it's tempting to give the Jews 
a miracle-working Jesus. It's tempting to give the Greeks a wise teacher, but we preach Christ crucified. How do we take the pastor off the pedestal in our hearts? By putting Jesus back on the cross. How do we take the pastor off the pedestal? We remember that the groundspring of our faith is Jesus on the cross, which means Jesus is not fundamentally a political zealot. We have those churches that think that the whole purpose of their faith is to make the country move in a certain direction. That's not Jesus the crucified one. That's Jesus the political zealot. It means Jesus is not fundamentally a strategic CEO. Though of course we want to use strategy. That's not fundamentally why we're here. He's not fundamentally a lover. Many churches, and I dare say for many of us in this room, we like the idea of Jesus our loving friend. Jesus our encourager, our affirmer, and he does. Jesus does love us. But what does that love looks like? It looks like a cross. And if a cross is love, it is not only pure love, but it's pure justice as well. We, in our, our modern society, we want love without justice. We want someone to affirm us without challenging us. That's not love. For anyone who's been in a true relationship, you know that's not love. You really don't want someone to affirm you over and over. You want someone who's gonna be present unto their death, but not cater or kowtow or humor you when you're heading in destructive paths. That's the cross. Not Jesus, the miracle worker, the wise sage, but the crucified one. I was having a conversation with a friend just the other day and they were talking about their church hurt and all the abuse they've seen and they've been a part of and they were saying, why am I, like basically asking the question like, why am I still a Christian? And I was listening and I love this person and I was listening, but my heart was growing fired up because I know that question. I've asked that question before as well. And at a certain point in the conversation, I go, I can tell you why I'm still a Christian because I've seen the hurt of humans, humans doing terrible things in, in God's name. I'm a Christian because I can't get over the cross because there's nothing like it anywhere else. I've not seen another story so perfect that's the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And when I focus on Jesus on the cross, when I drown everything out and see God in human form gasping for air, weakly, humiliatingly, to join me in that place, something changes in my heart. I have grace for people. I feel accepted even at my worst something new can truly be born. What do I hope for Hope Brooklyn? What do I hope for the church in America? I hope that we would once again be a people. When we worship Jesus, what we first mean by that is the Jesus who died on the cross for us. We'll talk about all the rest, the other faces, but first, he's Jesus on the cross. And with that, we're going to take communion. This is how we remember it. This is how we make the declaration that our relationship with God is not mediated through a pastor. We all show up to consume him, consume Jesus. If you're tuning in and, 
and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's totally fine. You are welcome here. But this time is not for you. I would encourage you to, to think about this, to think about if this, the values of America are working for you, to think about if they're bringing you life, or if there's something about the image of God on a cross dying for you because he loves you. He doesn't want you to be alone. He's not gonna let death get the final word in your life. And because he's taking your place. You deserve to die, he doesn't, but he's joining you there, taking your place so that you can live. If that just moves you, if you find anything else like that in the world. But for the rest of us, this is our moment where we declare with Paul that firstly, we are not worshiping Jesus the miracle worker or Jesus the teacher, we're worshiping Jesus the crucified. And the, the bread and the cup represent that gift and that sacrifice for us. So if you have your elements at home and those in the room, if you have your elements, let's go ahead and take the bread and the cup in remembrance that we consume God's gift through Jesus. God, I pray for this next move of your spirit and your church. I pray that we would stop deifying humans, that we'd get rid of pastoral bloat, that we'd stop creating hierarchies, that the church would never again tell someone you're not our target demographic, ever. Forgive us. That we would be known as a people who do not hide our brokenness or our pain, that we would be known as a people who hold up our weaknesses to one another, unafraid because what binds us together is you becoming weak, you joining us in our weakness. Therefore, we're so different because in a world that prides itself on winning and success and glory, we are a people who pride ourselves on sacrifice and servanthood and weakness. And in that place, we're not defeated and we're full of joy and peace and rest and truth because you joined us there. And so Lord, I pray for this church that I love so much. And I pray that the crucified Christ, that your cross would always be at the center of Hope Brooklyn. That no matter who is called as pastor to serve this incredible community, that they would be honored, they would be loved, they would be cherished, but they would not be made to play a role that only you can play in people's hearts and lives. I pray that people would take their faith seriously again and have had nothing to do with a pastor and have everything to do with your son. So Lord, meet your people where they're at today. We put you back on the cross. It's in your name. Amen.